Welcome to Mythos Podcast, a journey through world folklore, region by region, country by country. Here you will experience folk tales and legends through music accompanied retellings of traditional lore. With brief introductions, the emphasis is on the stories and the rich landscapes and cultures that birthed them. Enjoy the riches of the folk imagination. Welcome to Folklorica Baltica, an exploration of folkloric realms in Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Introduction In Baltic folklore, birds are mediators of heaven and earth, between the living and the dead. Their music is heraldic, and their song a prophetic chanting. Birds inhabit and embody the dynamic force of space, soaring through the invisible ether of the atmosphere. As beings of heaven and earth, they also represent the continuity of life and their symbolism is rife in all stages of life. Birth, marriage, and death. The cuckoo, for example, has associations with the chthonic or underworld, but is also the harbinger of true spring. The full gamut of human experience. Life and death is associated with it. So the cry of the cuckoo has prophetic qualities concerning weddings, births, and deaths. Pigeons and doves, in a similar vein, were considered to be the spirit of a dead person. Geese, swans, and storks were associated with sexual union and were popular images on dowry chests. It was said that a woman becomes a goose and is reborn into her new life in her husband's family, bringing with her souls or children. In traditional archaic wedding dances, the limping dance steps of the women resembled waterfowl walking. In origin myths, the world has its beginning in a cosmic egg, and birds participate in creation. They are also psychopomps, beings who are responsible for escorting newly deceased souls into the land of the dead. As spirit guides and prophetic beings, 
as world creators and symbols of fertility. The sacred nature of birds is strong in the Baltic worldview. As denizens of trees, themselves sacred and full of magics, birds reside with powerful forces and spiritual beings. The most notable is the linden tree, that sacred arboreal dwelling of Lema or fate. In this story, we will journey to the thrice three realm, to the garden of a Baltic king, where, amidst bone-white birches and tall meadow grasses, there dwells a bird only accessible to the truly wise. This episode is dedicated to Janet D., whose very kind email motivated me to write this episode when I was feeling very low indeed. It is also dedicated to Eva P., one of my dearest friends. It is a very belated birthday gift, but happy birthday nonetheless. Enjoy. Part 1. Since they were tiny boys, through all the many years the king's sons had watched soaring birds. Their flight in the upper world like a deep breath beneath an expansive sky. During many a candlelit night as little tots, they had heard of the king of the thrice three realm and his strange bird. A beautiful otherworldly creature that had soared through all three worlds. The heavens the earth and the underworld, and breathed in their powers. This bird lived in a golden cage in the garden of the king of the thrice three realm, and it was let out every morning, but at sunset it would come flying back to its cage and spend the night. Some said that it traced the contours of the sun's journey, listening to the whisperings and roarings of the sky world, restoring its own magic, and then As the sun descended past the horizon and into the underworld, the bird would soar over the disorienting darkness, basking in its chthonic magics. Then the bird would return to its earthly garden, where it would long for sleep but could not, because its avian soul was so alive with the power of starlight and sun glow and infinite blue ether and black abyss. Indeed, All of this enticed the king's sons, but what beguiled their imaginations most of all was that this bird had a ring on the claw of its left leg, and whoever took it off would have the bird in their power. But this tale always carried with it a warning, a cautionary sentence delivered with intense gaze and lowered voice, delivered by old nurse and their wise tutor older folk who had suffered consequences and so knew in their blood and bones that it could actually happen to them. Many men have tried to take that ring off, they would say, but have disappeared utterly. They might as well not have existed in the first place, for who knows where they may be. But the elder and the middle prince did not hear these words for they were lost in thoughts of gold and battles won and immense swaths of land under their control by the power of this great bird. It was the youngest, though, 
who would nod his head and stare into the fire, knowing he desired the bird, but also wondering where those mighty men had gone. Part two. So, taking a deep breath into young, expectant lungs beneath an expansive swath of blue sky, the three princes saddled horses as full of thundering hoof energy as themselves and rode off to Praia Bridge, the Great Crossing as it was called, a stone path of great antiquity that led over a mountain-fed river. And feeling the weight and grace of the azure vault of heaven above, its fatherly eye upon them, and hearing the mutterings of their ancestors where blood meets bones, they knew what must be done. The eldest sprang off his horse, took out his sword, and made three notches on the bridge's rail. Then he said to these brothers, Come check these notches every day. If they remain white, all is well. If they bleed, then you must come to my aid. So the eldest journeyed through the long daylight hours and rested during the short evenings. And then, on the ninth day, the eldest arrived in the thrice three realm. Glowing sole wove radiant sunbeams from an amber distaff that June day. Sultry life food that coursed through millions of miles of vacuum darkness to contour the stately forms of palatial pines and birch, willowy and sinuous. And with all the vagi, all the life force of midsummer, the eldest prince marched straight to the king's throne room and announced that he wanted the bird. And the king sighed and asked, with no real conviction behind his words, how do you intend to do that? Many men have tried and failed, as will all men. They have disappeared utterly. They might as well have not existed in the first place, for who knows where they may be. And as was expected, the eldest would not be deterred and insisted that he must try. The king gave his permission, and as the prince strode out, he wondered what shadow realm this one would weep for his mother in. Part three. The sun had radiated its deep heart and power onto the world with celestial light that broiled and sang and stabbed and stroked, and the magic bird had flown amidst its glittering dust motes and cloud-piercing rays, had followed the arc of its midsummer odyssey across the ether sea, and now as the sun cast twilight magic in its descent to the underworld, the bird was unaware that yet another adventurer sought to capture it. The eldest prince entered the king's garden as the sun set, and tread lightly in his search for the three-crowned linden tree. And as the veil of twilight thickened, the prince tiptoed through tall summer grass and ended up in a thick grove of birches, so heavy with presence that the young man laid a gentle hand on one of the trees. Suddenly, the birch shuddered, 
not with wind gusts, but an inward tremble. And when something like wet lips parting could be felt beneath his hand, the prince withdrew it in horror. But when he looked at it and saw nothing but a normal, though an extraordinarily beautiful birch, he thought the midsummer vagi must be bewitching his senses. Then, after a few more steps, his eyes bade him be still, and with a kind of giddiness, he saw, in a glade grown over with the thickest of grasses, an enormous trunk that droned largesse in antiquity. Following the sky pillar upward, the prince felt silenced in mind and spirit, for from this trunk expanded three thick giant crowns of leaf, flower, and branch that seemed of infinite depth. And just beneath those queen verdant crowns, there hung a golden cage, empty. And in that glade, a deep, deep silence reigned. And huddled within that silence and in the tall grass, the eldest prince waited. Part four. By and by, the whole garden seemed to come alive and swell with sounds as if thousands upon thousands of birds had burst into song there. The caws and croaks of blackbirds, the coarseness of their cries coming from their blue-purple sheen of black depths, the warm mother coo of the wild doves caressing the canopy, the curious call of the cuckoo turning ears to the future, the wagtails of soprano chittering like oral sunlight, the lapwings' high treble whooping with that strange suggestion of otherworldly echoes, the crescendo of these sky dwellers' chirping revelations was so overwhelming that the eldest felt a ringing in his bones. Amidst this chorus, a great trill resounded, like that of a nightingale with a throatier weight, and indeed, the eagle-sized bird that swooped deftly into the golden cage looked very much like a nightingale, but with dimension and depth to its coloring that spoke of stranger habits. The brown of this bird sang mulch and bark. The orange hues trilled the subdued sunsets. The hints of charcoal and black sounded horns in distant caverns. And as all went silent, the eldest remained hidden in the grass. And the bird, looking all around the glade, said in piteous and sorrowful tones, Everyone is asleep. Is there not a single soul anywhere around who will say, Why don't you go to sleep too, Bobolis the bird? Such a name the eldest had never heard. Bobolis and something far flung, something like the exotic eastern silk merchants brought to his father. It surrounded this name, yet despite the beautiful strangeness of the bird, the eldest thought to himself, Well, if that's all it wants, I can do it. It's little enough. For he was bewitched by thoughts of gold and battles won, and immense swaths of land under his control. 
With that, the eldest stood from his hiding place and said, Go to sleep, Bobolus the bird. The bird turned to the prince, its feathers ruffled, surging with a new color, like blue velvet mixed with star milk. And all the power of the twilight earth and the celestial dwelling of moon and sun and the onyx sheen of the underworld. All of this coursed into the bird's wings, and when the bird struck the eldest prince with his wing, it felt as if instantly a deathly sleepiness sang dirges between his thoughts, which became smothered and indistinct. Then cracks and woody tumors appeared where his skin would be, and a blanched whiteness where he was normally ready. When he tried to cry out, he couldn't. And all he could manage was a muffled scream behind his fused wooden lips. And his smothered cries were accompanied by a riot of uncanny shakings and voice susurrations from the grove of the birch trees. When darkness fell, so did these sounds. And only deep silence surrounded the birch tree that was once a foolish prince. Part 5 The two princes, the middle and the youngest, could feel the sting in their own souls when the notches on Perea Bridge oozed blood like a razor wound. There were no streaks, no smears of blood. It could not be said that a hunter had dragged his catch carelessly. No, the three notches bled as if the bridge was flesh, and the ill omen needed no comment. So the middle brother saddled his horse and set out at a gallop for the thrice three realm. He journeyed through the long daylight hours and rested during the short evenings. And then on the ninth day, the eldest arrived in the thrice three realm. There he approached the king and asked him if his brother returned. But the king only shook his head sadly and said that he had not. Before the king could utter a warning, the middle brother politely bowed and set off to find his brother. Like the eldest, he entered the king's garden as the sun set and tread lightly in his search for the three-crowned linden tree. And as the veil of twilight thickened, the prince tiptoed through tall summer grass and ended up in a thick grove of birches, so heavy with presence that the young man laid a gentle hand on one of the trees. Suddenly, the birch shuddered not with wind gusts, but an inward tremble, and his skin prickled and crept at what seemed to be an uncanny groan coming from the tree. The middle brother thrust his head amid a thicker grove of birches and saw the three-crowned linden, but saw neither head nor hair of his eldest sibling, and so hid in the tall grass and waited. Then, like his brother, he heard the whole garden come alive and swell with sound as if thousands upon thousands of birds had burst into song there. The crooks, the cuckoos, the wagtails, the doves, and a legion of other birds warbled and croaked and piped with the crescendo of crystal thunder. Again, the magic birds soared into the glade and landed in the golden cage. And as all went silent, 
eldest remained hidden in the grass. And the bird, looking all around the glade, said in piteous and sorrowful tones, Everyone is asleep. Is there not a single soul anywhere around who will say, Why don't you go to sleep too, Bubulus the bird? Unlike his older brother, this prince was more cautious. With all the attunement to subtlety and the smart aloofness that marked the middle child. So he remained crouched in the tall grass and waited, for this bird was cunning and narrowed his gaze with human craftiness. Bobulus the bird then repeated himself, but this time with a childish tremor that cut straight to the middle brother's heart. And so he stood and said, Go to sleep, Bobulus the bird. He thought that Perhaps he could insinuate himself into the bird's good graces by showing mock concern, and perhaps capture him that way, for he was bewitched by thoughts of gold and battles won and immense swaths of land under his control. The magic bird, however, was having none of it, and with one strike of his great wing, the middle brother gaped in terror at his own extending limbs, stretched and hardened, and his fingers sprouting delicate leaves. His spirit and thought dispersed throughout bark and vein and root, and he groaned at the terrible stiffness of his being. Part 6 The white notches on the great crossing bridge again welled with blood, and the younger brother's heart and limbs were seized with urgency. So he leapt onto his horse, and though he was younger and less hardened for such a journey, he traveled through the long daylight hours and rested during the short evenings. And then, on the ninth day, he arrived in the thrice three realm. Again, the king sadly shook his head in response to the prince's inquiry. Again, a young prince found the whispering birches and the three-crowned linden, and seeing what he thought was a deer's bed, he nestled down into the small flattened circle in the middle of the tall grass. He waited there, watching the golden cage. At twilight, when the sky seemed a mix of blue velvet and star milk, that great choir of birds surged in song and the youngest brother was startled from a warm doze. Every avian soul of that great northern realm sang welcome to the magic bird, who seemed doused in the potions of earth, sky, and underworld. And when the bird repeated its strange plea and looked around the garden, the youngest did not despise the fear in his gut. Instead, he sensed its wisdom and remained crouched and silent. A still, small voice within him said, Wait, wait. This still, small voice within every nook and cranny of his being, and the youngest obeyed. After the second and the third time, the magic bird made his plea. Now, Bubulus the bird, tired of repeating himself, hopped into his cage. Once there, he looked to all sides, and seeing no one, buried his beak in his feathers and slept. With careful steps, the young prince approached the cage, 
reaching through the door and grabbed the ring on the bird's claw, making sure he closed the cage right after. Bobulus the bird started awake and flung and tore about the cage, beating its wings and weeping and sobbing. And once exhausted, the bird looked at the prince with intelligent eyes and said, You have my ring, so I am now in your power. The youngest, like all men, could not deny that there was the seed of desire for lands and power within him. But a larger part of him had soaked in the wisdom of his father and his old nurse and his wise tutor and knew that such otherworldly power could not be trifled with and also knew that compassion would lead to true wealth. So the youngest replied with, Tell me, Bubulis the bird, where are my brothers? And when the bird responded with, The two birch trees beside you are your brothers. The youngest heard a rustle and a creak that seemed to whisper great pain from a vast distance. Tell me, the youngest prince said, Tell me, Bubulis the bird, what sort of creatures are the other birches? They are men too. And how am I to restore them, wise bird? Go deeper into the birch grove, and if you look around you carefully, you will see a heap of sand. Throw three handfuls of each at the birches, and they will return to their proper shape. And so the youngest followed the instructions and saw the heap of sand, marveling at its sparkling beauty and its smooth, elegant shape. At first, he thought that a gust of wind had lifted the sand amount, but then he realized that it was rising and falling, as if softly breathing. Wise youth that he was, he paused and allowed the visions of a sleigh penetrating great darkness, and the smell of baked honey biscuits, and the mellowing light of insole, the underworld where the sun rested at night. Hello, Smusamate, mother of sand, the young man said softly. May I use your magic to restore some foolish young men? And when the glittering mound breathed out peaceful permission, the youngest prince went straight to work. First he threw the three handfuls of mother's sand at the tallest birch, which twitched and shook, and then the ossified white of the bark began to shrink and contract, and the leaves began to split and soften until the tree transformed into the eldest brother. At first, the eldest brother blinked and reached out as if blind and fell to his knees saying he felt dizzy and that his thoughts seemed to be traveling through a great darkness to return to his mind. But once his senses were restored, he stared at his youngest brother in awe, hugging him tightly in gratitude. After that, as each young man was returned to his true state, there was a frenzy of mother sand, glittering in the full moonlight, and shuddering leaves and suppling bark, until the entire glade was filled with bewildered young men, chattering and questioning. Now, in his innocence, the youngest did not notice the narrowing gaze of his brothers, or the small conniving grin they exchanged between themselves when they saw a golden ring on their little brother's finger. The youngest was too caught up in the joy and relief in that glade to see his brothers whispering to each other 
when Bobulus the bird perched on a branch just beside the youngest, waiting for his instructions. Part 7 The prince's journey home from the thrice three realm took them by the sea, where amber-studded sands rested by the ever-changing moods of water and sky, sometimes glittering in sunbeams and sometimes sleeping beneath charcoal clouds and steel-gray waters. Now, the youngest was indeed still very young, and did not quite have the stamina of his elder brothers. So when he became so exhausted that he could not move another inch, he laid down and fell asleep by the sea. And his wicked brothers waited until he was deep, deep in slumber, and picked him up, taking him to a rocky outcrop that hung over the deep sea, and they cast their little brother into the waters. His scream mid-air as he awoke to find himself soaring into cold waters was truly pitiful. And there was a twinge in the hearts of the eldest two. But seeing Bulbulus the bird hanging its head on the beach below, their hearts leapt and they rushed to it, thinking that the magic bird was now under their control and would shower them with riches. And when they returned home with the bird, they commanded and commanded until they grew hoarse and frustrated. For when they had tossed their younger brother into the sea, they had not taken the golden ring from his finger. The bird did not respond because they had no real or true authority. And their father, the king, who cried and mourned for the death of his youngest, now began to narrow his eyes with a dreadful canniness. He began to doubt his son's story about the youngest prince falling off a cliff because of a fog and his own fatigue. Part 8 Now, deep in the amber sea, a fast-gliding slender undine, a mermaid, soared to the ocean bottom to a great castle of walls and towers, rich and deep with eons of sole's aura and infinite sea caresses, whisking through a school of fish whirling beautiful formations around a stone of earthen umber and halcyonic gold, around a structure of amber with its own internal light, the sea maiden went straight to a great hall where two figures sat waiting for her news. First, the great lady of the sea rose from her amber throne and unfurled the full length of her terror and beauty. Water sculpted with the smoothest lines of waist and hip, she flowed and rippled like lunar glow on the ocean surface. Ready to take on the cause of her beloved companion, she asked 
the Undina to speak. Indeed, her companion was also eager for this report, for it concerned his beloved father, who mourned for him with such grieving vigor that the terrible sadness ate away at his fat and blood and bones. And in fact, this companion was the youngest son, whose end did not come in cold, dark waters, for the Undina had pitied him and carried him back to the Amber Palace, where the Sea Queen fell in love with him. So the youngest was now a king, whose doting love for this lady had eclipsed his memory of his land life. But now, hearing of his wasting father, the youngest took pity on him, and with a wordless stare between the youngest son and his beautiful wife, he rubbed the golden ring. And with a sound like blazing sun and dying day, the ring lengthened and stretched with such speed that the youngest son could barely perceive what was happening. And in a blink, a golden bridge appeared before him, arcing upwards from the ocean underworld. And when he bid his wife farewell for just a time, he began to walk on the bridge, and he found that his steps were propelled by deep magic, the kind we find in the folds of our little universe, when the time is just right. This bridge, warm to the eyes and shining to the touch, traced the contours of the sun's journey, and like Bubulis the bird, the young prince soared from this underworld and its chthonic amber castle into the whisperings and roarings of the sky world. Then, his journey ended upon the middle world, directly in front of his father's palace. The moment the young prince entered the great hall, the magic bird raised its head, spread its wings, and began to sing. It sang of true things in this den of lies, of silly youngest children and their innocent wide eyes, of their childish hush when wise tutor and old nurse spoke, and the true wisdom of all these things. The bird trilled and chirped the youngest son's restraint in the garden and his service to the ossified birchmen. And when the bird hissed and cawed the terrible deeds of the elder brothers, those two cowered and begged before the king's throne, asking over and over again for forgiveness. The youngest said nothing and thought they were truly a pitiful sight. And though his heart ached with a weighted sadness like a cloak drenched in dismal downpour, he knew that their redemption was not his business, and so said to them, I forgive you. The youngest then sat at his father's feet, laid his head in his lap, and the old man stroked his hair with tenderness the color already returning to the king's gaunt, pale face. And after telling the king of his adventures and his marriage to the sea queen, the youngest took the bird and made his way back across the golden bridge. And at the zenith, where Eivaras, those airborne kite spirits, breathe free, and where the sun reunites with its celestial kin, the youngest took off the ring and set the bird free, knowing dear Bobulus would keep the bridge intact until he reached the gate of the Amber Castle.
And now for the outro of this episode and Folklorica Baltica. Our journey through the Baltic lands has come to an end. From Estonia to Lithuania to Latvia, we have traveled through forest, sky, and sea and have met some fascinating beings and unusual heroines. The episode scripts will be turned into an ebook very soon for my patrons, so please do consider becoming one if you want access to this. Another batch of postcards with Baltic folk art will also be coming your way, patrons, as well as a foray into Korean shamanism when season five is launched. Head to patreon.com to become a patron, and of course, I always welcome um, emails particularly encouraging ones because sometimes you're making time for all of the research and the writing as much as I love it when I'm feeling really exhausted with life. Um, sometimes just one little encouraging message can really give me new energy. So I will see you again season five, which is going to be Korean folklore. And please again, go to patreon.com to become a patron. Um, I would really appreciate the help um, financially just for the research um, tools and um, having you know, access to online databases, etc. Thank you very much.